Hi, and welcome to Women in Jazz, the podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of female jazz musicians. I'm your host, Irani Nejbetsky, and each month I'll sit down with a different jazz musician to discuss what got her into jazz, her experience developing as a performer, and what life is like as a professional jazz musician today. This month's guest is vocalist and composer Risa Branch. Although currently based in New York City, Risa grew up in Dallas, Texas, and has spent much of her musical career working in Vancouver. While those who have followed Risa's musical development might recognize her for the futuristic R&B and soul sounds of her debut solo album, in recent years, Risa has found her way back to her roots as a jazz and blues vocalist. Risa and I caught up back in July, when things were opening up a little again over the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, to discuss her musical influences growing up, her earlier work as a professional musician in Vancouver, and what later drew her into the world of jazz and blues, how she views herself as an artist and the skills she's currently developing, and some of her observations of the cultural norms and dynamics of New York's hot jazz scene. Before we get stuck into this month's episode, I want briefly to spotlight another part of the Women in Jazz project. As longtime fans of the podcast and those who have found Women in Jazz over Instagram may be aware, one arm of the Women in Jazz project is the regular Women of Jazz History feature posted on Instagram. While the podcast aims to shine a light on the work and experiences of jazz musicians working in the present day, Women of Jazz History focuses on the wealth of great jazz women of the past, most of whom were never given their dues in their professional life or in the records of jazz history. From bassist Lucille Dixon, who played professionally as a jazz and classical musician for more than 60 years, to composer and arranger Margie Gibson, who wrote for the likes of Benny Goodman and Count Basie in the 40s, and to singer, pianist and trailblazer for the LGBTQ community Gladys Bentley, Women of Jazz History aims particularly to spotlight lesser-known artists of the past, to show that the wealth of women's contribution to jazz extends beyond the greats we all know and love, like Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, and Sarah Vaughan. While a lot of my research for women of jazz history comes off the back of others' great work, including authors Sherry Tucker and Kristen A. McGee, it still takes noteworthy time and effort, and I frequently struggle to get together the resources I need to create a full profile on an artist. So, women in jazz fans... If you find some great detailed information about a lesser known artist you'd like to share with me, you're more than welcome to do so. And likewise, if there's an artist of jazz history you'd like me to do a profile on, I'd love to hear your requests. You can contact me either via the Instagram, which is at women.in.jazz, or via the Women in Jazz email, womeninjazzpod at gmail.com. While I can only handle so much at a time, your submissions might just help contribute to the life and longevity of the project, and I'd love to do my best to serve your interests and your curiosity. And with that said, I'd better bring things back to our guest. Here's my chat with Risa. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate your willingness to do this chat online, even after your first gig back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So, yeah, you you just said you had your first gig back. I, I sat in with a sat band. Of, okay. Yeah, um, so friends of mine playing, and I, I often have been a special guest for them. This was their second gig back, and this is my first time singing in front of live humans in four months. So Real life happy. humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so weird. So good. Um, so you're currently based in New York, yeah? Yes. But New York City. You, you're originally from Vancouver, is that what I understood? I'm actually originally from Texas, but I ah. did spend a, a long time in Vancouver and nice. I consider it one of my homes for sure. Okay, so where are you from in Texas? Dallas. And what was life like growing up there? How old were you when you left? I actually moved to New York for the first time because I've moved here and away a couple of times. But I moved to New York for grad school. So I stayed in Texas through college. Yeah. What was your kind of home life like when you were growing up in Texas? What was your kind of family life? I have a pretty small family, actually. Um, It was just me, my mom, and my little sister. My sister is also a a singer type, um, but she does more show tunes. Okay. And and she lives in Australia, actually. Oh, right. Where in Australia does she live? Melbourne. Ah, cool. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So that must mean that there was quite a lot of music in the house when you were growing up. It's actually weird. I think both me and my sister are actually, I don't know where we got it from because our mother isn't particularly musical. Like we didn't have uh, a lot of music in the house uh, from her. But both of me and my sister were both into music and we were in band and we played instruments and that sort of thing. Mm. So who knows where it came from? Maybe yeah, it skipped a generation. That's possible. Yeah. Were you listening to like a lot of music at home at all? Or even that was Yes, not- of course. Um, well, I started band, uh, I think in grade five. Or it might have been four. But I was playing clarinet. And um, from there is when I really started to listen to a lot of music wanted to listen to all the clarinet players. So, of course, I was listening to Benny Goodman. And, uh, when you were in fifth bigger. grade? Yeah. What? That's <laughs> mad. <laughs> well, um, a clarinet player. You want to you listen to the good clarinet players. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, yeah, it was through Benny Goodman is how I discovered a lot of the vocalists who I still love, you know, because mm-hmm. he, he had a lot of really awesome vocalists. Mm. Which of his vocalists inspired you the most at that time? Um. Did he work with Billie Holiday? I yeah, can't he now. did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Um, and mm-hmm. also Peggy Lee. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> so then, but you were playing clarinet. Was that an instrument that was just handed to you or was there a reason? Well, I don't know that if you, you remember um, or if you ever experienced kind of the instrument day that they have at schools, but how it worked at our school was um, there would be a big room with someone at each instrument and kids would go around from instrument to instrument now that I think about like COVID like this is like kind of a nightmare but (laughs) 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 but kids would go around from instrument to instrument and see what struck their fancy see what what they played the best and Mm -hmm. uh, I remember I could play both the clarinet and the trumpet but I ended up choosing the clarinet it just seemed like easier (laughs) yeah yeah okay interesting and so you were already kind of interested in uh jazz then at that age just because you were looking for stuff that resonated with clarinet was that then like were you listening to that music at home was that yeah I was listening to um yeah all the Benny Goodman recordings and other um I actually really liked classical back in those days too and that's a lot of what we were playing in symphony and orchestra but um yeah I totally did get into Billie Holiday especially actually um I started listening to her a lot but I I mean it wasn't just jazz I was listening to Bob Dylan and (laughs) I actually really did have like a whole musical exploration around that age I forget how old maybe around 12 13 I also had a lot of music at church as well. Um, you know, we were going to church and I was in the gospel choir. 
And that's kind of how I got my singing start. So that was from a young age. Yeah, right. Do you still do anything to do with choirs now, with gospel, anything like that? Actually, I haven't sung in an ensemble in quite a while. I was singing in gospel choirs through university. Like we had a university gospel choir um, and we recorded an album with that choir. So ah. I think that, that experience was probably the last time that I sang in a group. Yeah, right. And so playing clarinet, and how long did you continue that for? Was there a point when you transferred your energies specifically towards singing? Well, the clarinet, I kind of dropped it in a closet and forgot about it after the last concert of my senior year. Okay. But I wasn't going to play it in college. <laughs> so mm-hmm. me, like I said, singing, I kept going with. So even after I graduated high school, I was still in gospel choirs in college. And um, then after college, I started to think about working with smaller bands and, um, you know, doing more solo work where I'm not singing in an ensemble. I had actually had a boyfriend um, who played guitar and we kind of started a songwriting team together. And that's kind of what got me into uh, singing on my own. <laughs> so then yeah. what did you what did you study at college something unrelated to music or yes yeah, so I, I studied advertising uh, and then um for grad school I studied nonprofit management okay. so my first career was um as kind of a professional activist cool all right yeah. <laughs> but what was the what was the work that you were doing there oh there's a lot of different organizations that I worked for um there was like an animal rights organization and there was um, an anti-racism think tank Mm-hmm. Um, and I often would get uh, hired to write grants or work on different campaigns for nonprofit organizations. Yeah, and actually the grant writing has come in handy as a singer. <laughs> in what sense? Well, there's some opportunities for artists to uh, apply for grants. And because I had that experience mm-hmm. doing it in kind of my first career, I've been yeah. able to, to do it as a musician as well. Mm. And what was your what was your experience like in working as a as an activist in that professional setting? Well, the reason why I went into it, I felt like I wanted to be of service and I wanted to help people. Mm. Uh, but there's so much bureaucracy, so much red tape and administrative mm. uh, work that you have to do in an organization. And I honestly realized I wasn't really cut out for a nine to five sort of work. It just was draining on me. <laughs> it was definitely draining on me. And after some time, I realized it really wasn't me. And mm-hmm. I started to be more open to other opportunities, other ways to be of service, other ways to connect with other people, mm-hmm. other ways to use my gifts. Um, I feel like that was one way, but there, uh, there have been a lot of other ways that, you know, I've uncovered as I, uh, when I left my professional life. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Do you find that you still engage in activist kind of areas now or through your art? Are you somehow able to bring in any of, any of that? Well, I, I definitely uh, support a lot of different movements that are happening right now from the animal rights movement to Black Lives Matter to organizations that are against what's happening at the border here with the separation of families, of immigrant families. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot going on that's really unjust here in the States. So yeah, I definitely support the different movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say uh, there's been 
some interest in my music based on the fact that I'm a vegan singer uh, to some of my um, fan base and, uh, and also some of the press that has been written about me and my music has come from the fact that I've been an animal rights activist for so long. So yeah, and, and right. that I was before I was kind of doing music on a more regular basis. That's so interesting. <laughs> I just don't think I've ever heard of that being the case before. So there are well, I didn't animals. start off in jazz, right? So I was doing yeah. original original music, including one song that was an animal rights song. Right. Um, that that one was actually called "Strange Fruit." So you you know it, it was um, uh-huh. inspired by Billie Holiday's "Strange Fruit," which was mm-hmm. about lynching, but instead this one was about factory farming and slaughterhouses. Okay. So okay, um, that connection makes a bit more sense in my mind now. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that, yeah, that song was probably um, definitely part of the catalyst of getting people interested in my music from a, an animal rights perspective. And, mm. and yeah, my first album was original tunes. I was an independent uh, indie artist doing songs that I had written myself. And um, I was working with a producer who made electronic beats. They're pretty funky, some very soulful Nothing like what I'm working on now, which is, um, you know, more traditional sounding jazz. Um, my two albums are quite different, actually. Mm. But um, that's what I started off in, because that's the community that I found when I moved to Vancouver, and which was kind of where I really started to perform a lot, I, I would say. Yeah, right. Actually, the first day, I think, that I was in Vancouver, I met the producer who I ended up working with uh, for my first mm-hmm. album. So mm-hmm. everything like happened very quickly when I, right. when I went there. And um, it's got a really awesome community of artists, um, a lot of indie artists who support each other. And it's got a lot of really awesome venues. You know, they're small, they're mm-hmm. supportive, and people come out. And so it was just a really great way to develop myself as an artist, singing all these little shows. Um, mm-hmm. I found it easier, actually, to get gigs there than I do here in New York as well. Gosh, I feel like I'm still in my infancy uh, here, here in the music scene in New York. Mm-hmm. But Vancouver was so easy. Like, I felt like opportunities would fall into my lap there. And... Um, that it was just a really supportive place to be as an indie artist. Yeah, They right. don't really have much of a jazz scene, unfortunately. That's a, <laughs> one drawback. But it was perfect mm. for the music that I was doing when I lived there. Mm-hmm. And so did you leave Vancouver because uh, the music kind of drew elsewhere? Or what was the... Actually, I, I, I needed to come back to the States uh, for family. Uh, they mm-hmm. had a sick family member, so um, I wanted to be closer to, to her when I, uh, to my grandmother, mm-hmm. um, when I came back. But I, so in Vancouver, when I was doing all these little gigs, um, I would, you know, I'd sing my own music, but to fill in the sets, I would also um, sing covers. Some of them were pop songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them were jazz songs. And I noticed, I started to notice when I sang jazz, I would get the most compliments after the show. And people would say, oh my gosh, like I love that song. You have such an amazing jazz voice. <laughs> like like you, you sound like somebody from the 1930s. And I would get this compliment over and over. And then some sh- shows I would do of just my original music. And it was, you know, kind of out there. It was, it was definitely, um, we called it electro soul, actually. It was, you know, a little bit funky, a little bit soulful. And I'd have people come up to me after the show and said, you, I liked your show, but I would love to hear you sing jazz. Like, <laughs> something that, 
I would hear over and over again to the point where I was like, okay, maybe I should listen to this. <laughs> and, you know, I feel like other people kind of made the decision for me to move into jazz, but um, mm. a friend of mine took me to this restaurant in Vancouver. It's called East is East, which is just a really beautiful venue um, there. And they have music every night, live music every night. And uh, he introduced me to his friend who was the band leader of a gypsy jazz band there and um they offered me the chance to sit in and I ended up having a residency there a couple of times a week for oh, two years I think so that was uh when I really started to sing jazz I guess on a regular basis and I, I started to move away from the other stuff that I was doing yeah of course and that kind of regularity is uh, really gonna that, that amount of practice is really gonna bring you into something I guess yeah. So by the time I had decided to come back to the States, uh, I was just singing jazz by then. <laughs> I moved mm. back to the States as a jazz singer and I didn't really want to live anywhere else but New York. Um, mm. yeah, it's the only place I really resonate with in the States, actually. But hmm. Why is I like big cities. I'm a big city girl. I like progressive people. Um mm-hmm. I like public transportation and public transportation. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like pedestrian thoroughfares uh, rather than concrete, you know, jungle highways and byways and big shopping malls. Like I like, you know, uh, local mm. commerce, yeah, more okay. community-based living, um, urban planning that is, you know, is around a community. I mean, it's it's also been to our detriment here in New York uh, due, due to, you know, the virus where everything's all packed in closely in New York. Uh, that's yeah. why it was kind of hairy for us. But um, it, it does make for a more interesting place to live. And I, I'm able to not drive, which I actually don't really enjoy that much. So, mm. Sorry, I got really excited about public transport because I didn't realize just how, like, little of it there was, like, in America until I went to America and was traveling alone and didn't have a license. And I, there was a few cities where I was just like, I can't do anything unless I just get Ubers everywhere or people drive me around. Like, yeah, there are a few cities in the States where the public transportation is good. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't actually call it great here in New York, but it's the best that the States has. Yeah. It's um, pretty, there's a lot of it, let's say like if it's yeah. if what it lacks uh, in like excellent service, it makes up for in just like, the sheer amounts of uh, trains and connections and metros. And, you know, yeah. I mean, you, okay. you can get around. It might take you a while and you might sit <laughs> on the track forever, but you'll definitely get there eventually. Whereas a lot of places that you're living in the States, um, you know, you won't get there on public transport. That's not possible. No. Um, and so you were playing this other, this other music uh, that was more your own creation. Do you still do any of that now? Are you still interested in that? And what music or musicians inspired you to create what you were creating? Well, when I started um, with the producer, uh, Obadiah Wonderful, he had some really cool, interesting songs and I wanted to sing on them. So it was like, well, what am I going to sing? Yeah, I, would, he, I was inspired by his compositions uh, mm-hmm. for that album. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, my second album was Jazz Standards, for the most part, um, I, although I did write one little swing tune. But um, I'm, where I'm going now is kind of a combination of those two approaches. Uh, I think for mm. my next album, it's going to be mostly original jazz songs that I've written. 
So where I started off with original tunes that weren't jazz, and then I went to like more jazz standards, and now I'm going to be doing more original jazz um, going forward, I think, or at least for the next album. Although mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm still singing a lot of standards for shows. Are you already in the process of writing now? Style-wise, what kind of vein does that fall into? Would you be able to kind of associate it with a particular style of jazz or is, are you thinking more broadly? I think a lot of it is kind of jazz blues. Uh, okay. I have a bluesy voice and a lot of it feels like the blues. It's just what comes out of me naturally, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, also, um, jump blues. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, that characterizes what I've written so far. Who knows what else okay. is coming. But <laughs> yeah, of yeah. course. And in terms of themes, what do you find yourself writing about when you write your own music? And, and I, that question I also... I write about love and I often sing about love. I'm more mm-hmm. of a romantic type singer or a torch mm-hmm. singer, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's just uh, more what's on my heart to express um, mm-hmm. either about love or pain <laughs> of love. Classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was the same thing true of the the music that you were making before you started doing more jazz? Let me think. Um, definitely had a, a fair share of love songs. Um, I guess maybe it was a bit more diverse. Yeah, it's just, I was just <laughs> curious about the process, what inspires, you know, individuals to create. Do you feel like you start more from a melodic place or is it more like there's a lyric or a particular thing that you want to say and then the, the melody comes to that it it happens uh well when I was working with the producer um you know obviously I started with his composition so I could kind of just create a melody on top of what he was writing Mm -hmm. um nowadays either I hear something in my head or you know it's like it just kind of comes to me Mm -hmm. as an inspiration a melody Mm -hmm. uh sometimes the melody is also with a lyric or sometimes it's just like I hear title or an, an, an interesting line that then goes from there to the rest of the song mm. um and it, it has happened before where I've written a whole song which is but doesn't have a, a melody it's more like a poem or something like that mm. um and then I, I kind of you know hope that I'll figure out how exactly I'll be able to sing those words that I've written because they don't yet have a melody Mm-hmm. But um, sometimes just like an interesting idea I have that I think sounds cool. And so like I kind of will go go with it from there on a lyrical perspective. Mm. Yeah. And, and when, you're, when you're a singer that writes their own music, are you just writing the, the melody that you're singing and then you're doing the chords around that or someone else is doing that? Are you playing also another instrument to help you with? I don't play any other instruments at the Mm -hmm. moment. Um, So I'll record uh, myself singing and then maybe record how I hear the background and then I have Mm -hmm. to get someone to uh, arrange it for me. Yeah, okay. And when you're doing the background, are you also doing that with your voice or? Yeah, yeah, I can do that with my voice. (laughs) Yeah, cool. I definitely need to work in collaboration um, due to some limitations of my musicality. It's interesting being in um, a scene and also in, in a community of musicians where, you know, this is a, it used to be an oral tradition, uh, jazz. A lot of my heroes were not classically trained. But nowadays when I show up, you know, to a venue, especially for a jam, a lot of these people, you know, they did go to school and they, you know, they did study mm. music. So it's like uh, finding my, 
you know, my way to um, still communicate with them without mm. having the full, the full breadth of language and, and learning that they have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like when you're traveling, you know, and you don't quite know the language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a little bit like that. But I imagine uh, a lot of my, my favorite singers um, also, you know, experience the same thing. I know Ella called herself a singer and not a musician, and I could I could say the same thing about myself. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I've I've had that conversation sort of with a few people. I'm I'm gonna have done it to death very soon on recordings, but like you know, when I think of Billie Holiday, and I think if you would ask her if she knew what she was doing, you know, theoretically speaking, she's not going to be able to tell you that, but she was Billie Holiday, you know, and she had that yeah. level of just innate understanding and that artistry and she learned by doing and she, yeah, I don't know. I find it interesting that it seems like in a modern jazz scene, people are quite quick to dismiss, can be quick to dismiss someone that hasn't learned through an institution and maybe doesn't know all of the theory that can be behind jazz music. Well, for me, what I've, what I've found is that you're right in the sense that um, other musicians might, you know, discount a, you know, someone who's not classically trained. But oftentimes the audience doesn't know the difference. And then oftentimes the audience doesn't care, uh, you know, in terms of they're not putting a judgment on, um, you know, how much education you've had mm. uh, in, in music. They're actually judging what's coming out of you in the performance. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I prefer to just focus on how the audience is experiencing uh, the performance because mm. um, that means more to me than, uh, you know, if some other musicians could, you know, feel that, you know, I have enough theory mm. or whatever. Like, I, I feel like it, it's more important mm-hmm. how the audience is experiencing it. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think that's such an important point, you know, what, what is actually resonating with those watching, like what's actually touching people. I think sometimes it's very easy to get lost in, you know, the technique of something like people who are doing the art can like, and I think sometimes wrongly get lost in sort of the, whatever the technical nonsense is that's going on rather than actually focusing on like on the audience, how does it connect with them and how does it speak to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so kind of coming off the back of that, how do you feel as a performer? How do you feel you relate to the audience? What about that experience do you like or do you notice about the way the audiences respond to you? I feel like there's a special quality to my voice that can be soothing for people. And um, it's also quite unique, although it's not completely unique. I get a lot of comparisons to Billie Holiday, you know. Oh, yeah. I think that's also what got me into the music, right? I was listening to her voice. And mm. I think part of me realized, oh, it's actually not that different than my voice. And if she can do this, then I can do it too, you know. It was mm. kind of a realization that I had. But I feel like there's something in my voice that's interesting to listen to. And that sometimes it can also have uh, an emotional effect on people in terms of either relaxation or uh, soothing or transportation is something I've heard a lot as well, like Mm -hmm. either to a different time period or just like out of the room, you know? Um, But 
One thing I feel like I'm able to express, especially in sad songs or blues songs, there's a, a, a movement of energy that I've noticed where, you know, I'll close my eyes and I'll get into a song and I'll try to express the emotion. And then when I open my eyes, people's faces are wet. You know, there's people are crying. So like, I've, I've seen that happen enough times to realize that there's an emotional expression that's happening when I'm singing. Mm. And so I feel like that's kind of my thing in music in terms of performance. And mm. I, and um, yeah, that's really beautiful. I think recognizing that power as well and kind of embracing that would only make you stronger in that as well. Yeah, I think what I'm working on now, because I, I do feel like that sort of the healing aspect of my music comes through. So now what I'm working on is to bring more of the entertainment in. So that's there as well, you know, making it more a holistic performance. That's kind of what I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. I'm also doing a lot of uh, repertoire expanding (laughs) with all the free time that I have at the moment. So uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. What have you been working on lately that has been expanding that repertoire? So when I started to feel out the jazz scene here in New York, well, I should say scenes, actually. There's multiple jazz scenes here in New York. Um, you know, there's more of a hot jazz, like mm-hmm. from the 20s and 30s, yeah, like early jazz. what really, really inspires me, actually. I feel like that's the, um, the scene in New York that has the most energy mm. and also is the most accessible. Mm. Um, and a lot of the other places, you know, they're quite pricey to get in or there's kind of a a gestalt to them like you know there's a particular type of person who will go to jazz at lincoln center on a regular basis um yes or birdland (laughs) Um, yeah but i feel like uh, there are some (laughs) aspects of the jazz scene here that are more accessible Mm. and when i first started going to different places just to check out the scene and see what was happening here to see where I kind of might be able to fit in. Mm. Um, I noticed that the hot jazz scene was really taking off here and a lot of people are getting a lot of gigs in them. So I kind of started going to a lot of the jams here Mm. and there are some songs that are already new that were kind of, you know, in the jazz standard canon, but then there are some songs that I, you know, they're really old. I hadn't really heard them before. I hadn't heard them enough to learn them. So I'm, I'm learning some songs that I have heard just like in my exploration of the hot jazz scene here. Cool. And then also figuring out what songs I know already that were written in the pre-war years Mm -hmm. um, because that's kind of what they focus on in that scene Mm -hmm. Um, but I've gone to enough shows now where you know every time I hear a song that I don't know and I like I jot it down and that the list is ridiculously long so yeah I was gonna say that's that's gonna be a long list by now (laughs) yeah there's Um. no no shortage of inspiration in terms of songs that I need to learn or could learn yeah yeah okay (laughs) do you have like a favorite on the on the working list now that's like a little bit unusual um, well, um, uh, the song, uh, when I get low, I get high. Oh yeah. I actually really love that song and I, I don't hear a lot of people do it. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a little bit provocative. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, it's just got a great feel to it. And every time I sing that song, people don't, you know, even you don't have to be a, a weed smoker to enjoy it. No, so. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great song. Yeah. It's a great song. Yeah. I'm sure the first few times I heard that. Like when I was younger, I, I wouldn't have put two and two together. And then later on, like, oh, obviously that's what it's about. 
<laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, so you were saying that you've been sort of back and forward, like living in New York and then not living there. Have you only lived in New York sort of one time since you've been playing jazz or have you spent time as a jazz musician based in other places? So I came back to the States because my grandmother was ill, mm-hmm. but she, she passed after a couple of years. And then uh, shortly after that, we elected, or, or some people elected uh, Donald Trump as president. And I was mm. like, you know what? Now would be a good time to leave. So I, I left for um, a lot of 2017, his first year in office, mm. basically until I ran out of money. <laughs> and I went to uh, Berlin and I went to London. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And so I've gotten some time hanging out in those scenes as well. And mm. what, one thing I've noticed is like different scenes, different jazz scenes have totally different songs. Or not, you know, some songs that overlap, but a lot of the canons can be quite different. You know, the songs mm. that you hear on a regular basis. Yes. I think London definitely has that, at least from my having been there. Like, I really feel like they've got their songs that are not always the songs in other places. Yeah. It was great, like, exploring the different venues that they have there, too. Mm. Yeah, I was going to... Then what was your experience of the scene like in London and Berlin, and how does that compare to the jazz scenes in New York? Well, I mean, I feel like there's a little bit more going on in New York in terms of um, opportunities, Mm. but London also has quite a lot of opportunities, and just from speaking to some of the musicians I know, they might pay a little bit better than the ones here in New York. (laughs) Yeah, Um, right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. um, I feel like it's unfair for me to compare the the scenes in New York to the scenes in London because I didn't have quite as much time there Mm -hmm. um, exploring them. Um, I feel like, I don't know if I've heard as much uh, of the hot stuff either there as much as it is here in New York. Um, I, I felt like a lot of London um, was more focused on contemporary jazz. Yeah, right. Yeah, but um, they do have some really awesome venues. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, I was just wondering if there was more like um, differences like in the energy of the people or the way that people interact with each other in the scenes or... Well, may I can tell you that Berlin was probably one of the funnest places to sing. Like yeah, people cool. are so into music there, like, and they're so appreciative of musicians there. Like, I couldn't have ever asked for more warm welcomes than when I was singing for um, German crowds. Like, yeah, they were just, you know, they're so into it. Uh, yeah, right. I, <laughs> That's yeah. cool. And here in New York, I mean... Uh, well, I mean, I, th- I think the hot jazz scene has, like, that sort of passion, but you go to some of the other sort of places and people, are, you know, they're having conversations or mm. they're into it, but they don't, they're not passionate about it. But I felt, like, real passion when I would sing at places in Berlin. Yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so appreciative of music. Yeah, I, I spent a little bit of time in Berlin, but I haven't perhaps uh, been to enough jazz gigs there to get that feeling. I'll have to fix that next time I go. <laughs> And did you feel playing music outside of the States, like playing jazz music? I mean, given that jazz is an American style of music and, you know, it was also like first and foremost a black style of music. It was created by the black Mm -hmm. community and then, you know, white communities also (laughs) took it and played it. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you find there's a different sort of cultural connection or people 
make different choices or are aware of different things. Did you notice sort of any differences there? I felt like, um, well, I guess I kind of already said it, that there's a passion there for it. Um, whereas mm. here, in some scenes, there is a passion and in some scenes, a little bit uh, an apathy or apathy. some people are apathetic um, mm. to the music. I feel like there's um, a little bit of, we take for granted, you know, what is here and like what was born here uh, so that in some places elsewhere in the world especially in Europe that jazz might be appreciated on a level a little bit higher you know to some populations than it is here in the states mm-hmm. just because it's an export because it's not originally from those places and you know I feel like here in the states jazz doesn't get at quite as much appreciation and I think it's because mm. it has its origins here and we kind of take for granted uh, <laughs> yeah okay um, the music you know it's like the people around you the people closest to you you know you, know, you don't really appreciate them as much uh, as as you do like the new things the new, yeah. the new people <laughs> um, yeah, and something that's like from another place or I do see a sort of I mean I haven't been to the states now for a few years but i do sort of observe a sort of liveliness and like a passion that's perhaps a bit more like innocent in the European jazz communities, almost like it's not so deeply connected to the roots that it sort of gets to be like a little bit more of like a, an innocent, excited exploration of something, or I don't know how to, these sort of old institutions are not there. And so it's not kind of, heavy with like, you know, all like all of the rich middle class, like middle, upper class, upper class people go to Lincoln Center and like that's where all the money is and like it's maybe mm-hmm. not as attached to that kind of mm-hmm. dynamic or something. I really, yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to reason what, I, what I've observed. I don't honestly know. But maybe the audience is a bit more broad in terms of mm. who it connects with. One thing I do notice that the I feel like there's a lot more younger people listening to jazz in Europe than there are here in the States. Like a lot mm. of the audiences of jazz here are, you know, um, in their mature years. Whereas mm. I know um, in London, especially there's like 20s and 30 somethings who are really into jazz there. Mm. Here, um, the only younger people who are into jazz are swing dancers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about why that might be? The age difference of audiences. I think it's what you were talking about before where there is kind of, I was saying maybe a gestalt of this particular type of person is into jazz and Mm. it is a little bit, there's a a class, uh, an upper class bent to it. Um, Mm. I don't know. Um, It might not be hard to say. Yeah, it's maybe not an an answerable question, but it's it's a curious difference, I think. Yeah, I mean, it could be multiple reasons from like... uh, a marketing perspective of who is targeted with the music and also who's targeted, um, like the younger people are targeted for other types of music and that that just might be what grabs their interest. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And so how do you kind of feel uh, about where you're at right now in in your music, but also in the jazz scene in New York? Like what is that experience um, for you at the moment? I'm still developing myself as a musician here. Um, like I said, there were some things that happened in Vancouver that, you know, I'm at my 
producer on the first day and like other opportunities that kind of just fell into my lap and I haven't had that same kind of experience here in New York. Mm. It's definitely a, a different beast. Um, you really have to hustle uh, in order to get gigs. And um, there's also, a, a, I'm still developing my network and I feel like that's one aspect of things that I do wish I had that schooling because I feel like the network that you're able to create when you're in college for music Mm. uh, is probably pretty immeasurable and like it's definitely helpful in terms of getting connections and the gigs Mm. and like having people know you so that because I didn't go to school uh, with all the musicians that I'm meeting I'm having to you know form those connections Mm. organically you know each night (laughs) that I see people yeah Um, and so it takes a little bit longer I feel like and um I feel like, yeah, I'm still developing myself in the music scene here. Mm. I'm expanding my repertoire. I'm, I'm still actually taking lessons, actually, uh, for scatting. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, and I feel like I'm going to a lot of jams to get as much experience and as much immersion in the music and in the scene as I can mm. to build up those 10,000 hours. <laughs> Yes. Um, um, It's interesting that you said the thing about school because I was talking to Jen, Jen Hodge, and that was one thing that she said about, I think she wasn't too impressed in many ways by her time at school. And she was kind of saying that she feels like just learning on the ground, like you were kind of talking about, you did, you know, like learning the music more as an oral tradition rather than like something that you go to a school and study she said in many ways that would have been fine and maybe more beneficial but like the the, one of the best things that she got from studying music at college was that she got those those social connections connections to others that were kind of with her in the in the cohort so it's an interesting point I can see the benefit from an outsider's perspective. I can definitely see those connections that were made and, you know, they're very beneficial, I think. Do you encounter many other people in the New York scene that you find have also kind of come from the same background as you, like coming into jazz without that university kind of study? I don't meet too many like me, to be honest. Mm. Um, A lot of the people who I have met in the scene are formally educated, classically trained, but I feel like um, in some ways, um, as I explore the New York community, I almost feel like a a little bit of an alien. (laughs) There's not that many Black people actually in the scenes that I'm I'm traveling in. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm singing a music with an oral tradition surrounded by, you know, a lot of white people who studied Mm. (laughs) this music in school. So I I definitely feel like a little bit Mm. estranged in the community. Like uh, I'm still kind of trying to connect with it and feel where I fit in. Mm. And that's again, where I feel like a school would have helped, you know, there's the connections that people make. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that there aren't a lot of black people playing the music with you. I mean, I, I say interesting. I'm not surprised. I mean, I think it's pretty observable, but it's definitely something that, you know, people do sometimes kind of notice and comment on and wonder about. Have you, do you have any thoughts about why that might be? Well, there's definitely plenty of jazz artists of color here in New York. Um, but what I notice is that there's not that many in the hot jazz scene or in the early jazz scene there. They tend to focus maybe on contemporary jazz mm. or they're doing um, some sort of fusion music, you know, like um, jazz soul or R&B or they're like past 
the scenes that I'm talking about and in the upper echelons of the music community. You know? Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a, a lot. They're just not in the scene that I'm in. Mm. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, but then still kind of begs the question in the hot jazz scene, do you have any particular thoughts about why there might be that difference? Hmm. I honestly am not too sure. Um, it could be, I don't know. There's a, what do I want to say about this? I feel like oftentimes when I go into the communities as, you know, the only black person in the room, it's a little bit weird or it's a little bit uh, intimidating. And Mm. so if other people feel the same way, and uh, it could be that they gravitate towards places where it's a little bit more diverse already. Yeah. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to be the integrators. (laughs) Um, I think there's also you know, there's a whole culture around the hot jazz scene, uh, especially, you know, with swing dancing and vintage clothes and vintage clothes wearing. And, you know, in order to mm. fit in, there's a certain kind of look that people go for or they're, they're shooting mm. for. Or they're, and um, maybe a lot of, not a lot of uh, black folks are into this particular style. That's it's possible. Yes. As a friend of mine, Brie says about that, she's like, uh, not a lot of black folks want to cosplay Jim Crow. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness for me like I actually really do love vintage wear however it's hard for me to look like I stepped out of the 1930s I have my hair in long dreadlocks which was not a style in the 30s <laughs> you know I, I can I, it's, it's hard for me like I can't like pretend that it looks like anything in the 30s I, mm. I could do the dress but my hair it's, it's contemporary <laughs> yeah um Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing. I mean, I am also like, I'm dancing as well. And I find it interesting that there is this kind of, and I'm not someone that hasn't participated in it. um, But like, I do find it interesting that within that sort of scene that likes earlier styles of jazz and, you know, within that scene of people that do jazz dances, that they do kind of gravitate towards the aesthetic as well. And like, Mm-hmm. Why? And it's a really easy way to kind of blend in or try to fit yeah. into the community. Like it, it's, it's almost a little bit of peer, peer pressure. And I felt it actually as soon as I came into the community. I was like, oh, I need to get some vintage clothes. <laughs> yeah. Because like, you know, there are people who will single you out or ostracize you if you don't look the part. You don't you look know, the part. Yeah. <laughs> That's really There are people true. that will. Very strange. To a certain degree, it does make sense, but I do sometimes wonder why the art isn't so easily separated from like the aesthetic of the time. It's, it's uh, yeah, yeah. It's I a mean, shame to me I, in a way I, I that they like have I to can listen, adhere, be adhere I can to listen to this music in jeans, like you know. It, it, I enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy it. However, <laughs> I enjoy it. However, I'm dressed. Like I can enjoy it. You know. In modern clothes, but apparently it's not allowed. (laughs) (laughs) I can listen to this music in jeans, so it's, yeah, no, that's, uh, (laughs) that's going to be my motto. (laughs) Um, It's, it's, it's like more conversational, but I think like just in general, I'm pretty interested. The jazz scene in general is pretty male dominated, but I wonder also how you feel like as a woman in the scene, like, do you really get the chance to meet a lot of other women in the New York jazz scene? And like... 
I'm, yeah, I mean, they're uh, yeah. mostly other singers on, on occasion, other players. Mm. But um, I, I would say a fair number of the other women um, mm. who I meet in the jazz scene are other singers. Yeah, but there's okay. lots, yeah, and I, I do get a chance to meet them. Although, unfortunately, because I'm a singer, I don't get to play with them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's pretty to common. To work with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then also, like... Yeah, this is mostly just my interest, like the new, how the New York scene is functioning and what it's like there for you. But do you do you feel like because I think in jazz in general, it's pretty accepted that there's like a particular attitude towards singers and like a little bit of kind of I don't know, like they're sort of assumed to know nothing until they can prove. Yeah, so I've heard this before. You're not the first person I've heard talk about this. Actually, my vocal instructor talks about it a lot. Yeah, right. But um, I don't know. It might be the kind of thing you pick up in school or Mm. when you're being formally educated. Mm. But I don't notice that sort of... That's awesome. ...disparity from the audience, which is actually what I care about. Yeah, and you said that before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't feel like the audience cares huh. whether the singer is classically trained. They care if they can carry a tune, <laughs> and yeah. they, you know they can perform it in a way that's you know entertaining or captivating or whatever. Yeah. Um, to be honest, it's fine with me if a piano player thinks that I'm you know just the the pretty girl in front or whatever, I, I'm fine with that. So long as the people in the audience love the experience yeah, of being lovely. I love that. <laughs> I really love that idea and just, yeah, kind of not, just not giving I it. don't, it might be because I'm not classically trained that I don't have that competition thing that some people have when mm. it comes to music. You know, it comes out when they're doing the solo and it's like, you know, how fast can I go and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I'm not trying to best That's anyone. Uh, I'm just trying to deliver as best as I can mm. and hopefully remember all the lyrics. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm focused more on what I have to do and I'm not trying to be better yeah. than anyone else. I feel like maybe some competition is engendered in, in the educational system maybe. Yes. And I don't, I don't have that. Um, I'm all about the audience. I mean, I, I like working with other people. I can't do my work without working with the, the musicians, but yeah. so long as they respect me enough to play well, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> yeah, cool. And I, yeah. I do consider myself still developing because I didn't have as much training as a lot of the people that I'm playing with. That sounds like a really excellent attitude. I think I, I, think I can learn something from this. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who I do care about their opinion. Um, of course. Uh, particularly if they have the ability to hire me. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually, yes. <laughs> so, you know, band leaders, yeah, I care what they think about me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, that's perfectly sensible. But, yeah, just to be a little bit less, uh, I think it's something in general that people can so easily get caught up on is, like, the the perfectionist kind of self-evaluating and evaluating how you relate to other people doing the art rather than like evaluating how your art relates to the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that how your art relates to the audience is the, that's really the reason for it in the first place. Like, yeah. I think like, cause I kind of know my strengths, like the strength of my music is in my voice. So now I can look at other artists as well and see what their thing is. And uh, a lot of times it is technique. That's their thing. Mm. Um, but because mine is just naturally there in my voice, like it's 
something comes out that is of value, even if it's not, you know. Yeah. It's interesting to me hearing about people that come not from like, or not hearing specifically from people that, you know, they didn't go through jazz school or whatever, but just like the differences between people that did and that didn't and like what their experiences of the scene are like, because, because it was originally such an oral like art form, it's interesting what the jazz scene looks like now and like what the values of a lot of the jazz scene are versus maybe what the essence of the music was originally or what was originally intended to do or yeah um so you uh, recorded an an album with jazz tunes did you record this one when you were already in new york or that one actually uh, was recorded in the last couple of weeks i was in vancouver Ah, okay and so the musicians on that were vancouver based musicians then yes they were all Mm. uh, canadian musicians and I, I did the editing myself, so that actually took me oh. a little time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a little time to learn audio editing and then also the, the time to get over the, the procrastination of doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, audio <laughs> editing. I love doing this podcast. I love interviewing. I love basically everything that this process involves except for the editing, and that's like mm-hmm. easily takes up the most time out of it all. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine actually. Wish I had an editor. I wish someone, if anyone's out there listening to this and wants to be my editor for free because I have no money, <laughs> I have no money to pay you, then uh, feel free to apply. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's quite a project. Do you, do you think you'll do the same for your next one or are you going to maybe take a different approach? It's very possible that I would do the editing myself for the next album. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and not a lot of people would put the amount of time into uh, the work as I would on my own project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that speaks to me as well. I can totally understand that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, cool. Yeah, do you have anything else that you you wanted to share about? Well, I was thinking about um, just the fact that we don't actually know what the scene is going to look like when everything reopens and what places mm. have closed. I think a lot of us have a little bit of trepidation as to when everything is reopening and mm. reopened, what's still left of the venues uh, mm. that allow jazz players. And I know um, for people who started re- digging again, the rates have gone down, you know, because people have been closed for months and they, they don't know what kind of audience to expect and they just don't have the cash to pay people. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what the, the music scene looks like as, mm. you know, things get hopefully back to normal if they can get anywhere near back to normal. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I did. I realized I wanted to talk about my little online project. So uh, after a few months of staying at home, I started to miss singing for people. Mm. And uh, I also wanted to, you know, try out this live streaming that everybody was doing, (laughs) (laughs) you know, kind of really took off in the peak of the crisis here in New York. Um, A lot of people were live streaming and I wanted to try it out. So um, what I realized, though, is that you can't be isolated and play with musicians live, you know, online. There's a, a latency problem. <laughs> yes. Um, so what I came up with is that I would have people record their accompaniment, but I could still sing live to that. 
Yeah. So I've, I've started a series that I call Split Screen Sessions. Um, where I sing live to uh, pre-recorded video performances. And it's been really great because I've been able to reconnect with people that you know, I haven't seen in a while um, to collaborate with them. Uh, it's also forced me to practice, which, you know, when you have all the time in the world, like having a goal in, in mind has been very helpful. And it's encouraged me to learn some new songs as well. So, yeah, I've really been loving doing the, that series. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, I don't know if you had anything else that you wanted to share or maybe we can finish. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I'm very, very happy to have got a chance to talk to you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what the fruits of your next project are, this next album with your own uh, compositions and, and how that's going to look. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Risa and her music, including her jazz LP, I Thought About You, you can head to risabranch.com. I'll include a link to this website and some other content in the show notes. Thanks again to the Shake 'em Up Jazz Band for allowing me to use their version of Vivian Gary's tune, A Woman's Place is in the Groove, for our podcast theme. If you enjoyed this episode and are interested in this project, it would help us a lot if you could like, share and subscribe. Reviews on podcast hosting platforms like Apple Music are also super helpful for the podcast to gain exposure. If you'd like to follow Women in Jazz, you can join our mailing list on the website, follow us on Facebook and find us at Instagram with at women.in.jazz, where I do the aforementioned Women of Jazz History feature. You can also help to support the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash women in jazz. Thanks again for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode.